This is Carol Foster of 2 Timothy 2.15 Resources, and I am so excited that you're going to join me today as we study God's Word. The response new Messianic believers give when asked why they initially visited a Messianic congregation is, we knew there had to be more. As we study together, we will begin to see that yes, indeed, there has to be more. For additional study aids to assist you in studying along with us, go to our website, sectim.org. When we met last, we had just completed our study of Shemot, or Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, which was the announcement of Yahweh's sovereignty and the prediction of the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. We found that this section of text had a three-part structure in which the announcement of the tenth plague, that of the death of the firstborn, verses 4 through 8, is carefully sandwiched between two reminders of what previously had been revealed. First, that the tenth plague would be effective at producing the exodus and that the Israelites were to be financially prepared for it by obtaining wealth from the Egyptians, verses 1 through 3. And second, that the whole series of prior plagues had not resulted in the exodus because that was the way Yahweh had planned things, verses 9 through 10. This surrounding of new narrative material with reminder narrative material has the effect of helping orient the reader and or the listener to the fact that the plague of the death of the firstborn and the resulting exodus of Israel from Egypt was not merely an event, but the culminating act of a long process controlled by Yahweh and brought to fruition exactly as he had predicted it, before any of the process had started. Moshe was writing this story not to merely help his fellow Israelites trust Yahweh as things happened, but to help them learn to trust that Yahweh is the one who makes things happen in the first place as part of a great redemptive plan for the benefit of his people. We then moved on to chapter 12, verses 1 through chapter 13, verse 16 which includes the Passover and the instructions for the Exodus. We had completed our study of verses 1 through 6 of chapter 12. So far in this narrative, we have found that Yahweh had now identified Moshe and Aaron as Levitical priests, as recipients of the legal instructions that were to follow. It was the responsibility of the Levites and the priests throughout the generations of Israel not only to keep the law themselves, but also to enforce it and to teach it to the entire population. This is important to note, as this assumes a much greater importance when we realize that these legal instructions were given to them while they were still in Egypt. Next, we discovered that Yahweh now identified that this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It was to be the first month of the year. We went on to read a detailed and fairly long description of how the Pesach, or the Passover meal, was to be planned for, prepared, and eaten. We read that the Passover lamb could be either a goat kid or a lamb. It must be young or a year old. It had to be male, and it was to be perfect or without defect. We also discovered how this was a prophetic revelation regarding our Messiah. If you missed any of this last session together, or any of our previous sessions in our current study, you can go to 
Hebrew Nation online, Torah teaching, there has to be more to listen to the podcasts. Remember that there is also available on my website, www.sectim.org, additional resource materials and study aids. As we move on to verse 7 of chapter 12, we read, Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. This verse is slightly cryptic and difficult to understand because it's mentioning only the houses in which they eat it. This leaves it to the reader's sense of logic to realize that this also included dwelling places such as tents, and included people who lived alone, but who may have celebrated the Pesach meal with their families, and the like. Far more importantly, the verse specifies the power of the shed blood of a sacrificial animal to protect Yahweh's people from death. The purpose of the display of the blood on the door frames of the houses, tops and sides, is described further in verses 13 and verses 22 and 23 of this chapter but we should appreciate the fact that an omniscient God would hardly need a sign to know which people had been faithful to him and which had not. The sign, therefore, was presumably at least as much for the benefit of those who were to provide it, to require them to undertake an action that involved more than mere concepts, but one that demonstrated their confidence in Yahweh's power to kill as well as to rescue. In this regard, it's somewhat like the action required in the plague of hail. Those who believed enough to take preventative measures kept their livestock. Those who did not lost them, as we read in chapter 9, verses 20 through 21. A dwelling's doorway is its connection with the outside world. There's nothing sacred or symbolic about the doorframe of a house, but there is also no better location to place a sign showing faith on the part of those who reside inside for the benefit of anyone outside who comes to check. We should note that the blood was smeared on the doorframe even before the Pesach meal was eaten. This may be an instance of first things first, that is, that deliverance from death is the primary interest of these instructions and the proper memorialization of the Exodus, the less crucial concern. We'll study this command to put the blood on the doorposts in more depth in just a few verses. We next read in verses 8 and 9 the instructions for preparing a sacrificial lamb or kid. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. Roasting over a fire required no setup or wash-up of pots and other utensils, no additional drawing of water, and no waiting time for the water to boil. Therefore, it was the fastest, simplest way to cook meat. Bitter herbs were the easiest to find and harvest and were eaten as a side dish, either raw or seared, as opposed to more elaborate ways of preparing, mixing, and cooking vegetables. Bread, made without yeast, could be rapidly mixed and heated. The usual multi-hour waiting time for the dough to rise and the loaf to bake was cut to just minutes. Eating raw meat would have been even faster, but both distasteful and dangerous to health. 
boiling the meat would have been, again, slower and more cumbersome, and therefore inconsistent with the emphasis on speed and readiness inherent in the Pesach concept. The inclusion of inner parts in the roasting does not mean the goat, kid, or lamb was roasted whole, but merely that it was gutted very simply and then roasted rapidly, as opposed to the usual full butchering and separation of the parts of the animals for eating in various ways and at various times. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 12, we next read of how they were to eat this meal. Remember, we have answered the questions. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. So far we've discovered what was to be eaten, with whom the meal was to be shared, and a very basic introduction to the placing of blood on the doorposts of each Israelite home. We now see in this section of the passage how the meal was to be prepared. Although cooked meat rapidly spoils without refrigeration and preservation by salting was the only preservation method known in the ancient world, it could have certainly last fresh many hours during the spring nighttime coolness in northern Egypt. Therefore, many Israelites might have been tempted to save some for breakfast. But this would have violated the symbolic sense of the meal, indicating that those who saved the meat both distrusted that Yahweh would provide for them the next day, as they were on the run out of the country, and that Yahweh's deliverance was an immediate, once-for-all rescue and sparing of his people. Accordingly, any remains, because of the miscalculating of how much each family or assembly families would consume in one meal, had to be burned once the meal was over. It was, in other words, more a meal of religious observation than a meal to provide sustenance over time. We then find that Yahweh had also given them instructions on how they were to dress when they ate the Pesach meal. Verse 11 tells us, Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. We find that preparation for travel was also important as another indication of faith that the long-promised deliverance was truly at hand. People tucked cloaks into belts when they traveled. They kept cloaks on loose and full length at night for warmth and comfort. Sandals normally were taken off at home. However, with this meal, they were worn in the house because a trip was imminent. Normally, no one carried his staff around the house. It was a tool for protection and herding in the open. A staff in the hand normally indicated readiness to be on the move, not a plan to stay at home. Thus, the entire meal and its manner and posture of consumption were to indicate faithful readiness for a speedy departure. It was a meal eaten in haste. It was the Lord's Passover, not a typical meal at all, but Yahweh's specifically assigned symbolic meal of Exodus deliverance. The Israelites were required to eat the Pesach meal in a manner that demonstrated their readiness to leave Egypt immediately. All aspects of the cooking and eating were designed to minimize time and maximize preparedness for sudden departure. This was an issue of faith. 
Did the families of Israel really trust Yahweh's promises for them? If so, were they willing to show that trust by preparing themselves to be fully prepared for departure and by eating what was to be their last meal in Egypt in such a manner as to not hinder their ability to gather together and start moving as soon as the command reached them? The willingness to go at a moment's notice and never to return could not have been easy for most Israelites, even though they initially believed Moshe's signs, as we read in chapter 4, verse 31, and had witnessed the nine plagues thus far, and they had been treated so badly for so long. After all, they had lived in Egypt for 430 years, a long time to acclimate culturally and geographically, and they were now being asked to leave behind everything they had ever known, the place where they had lived all their lives, where their parents and grandparents had lived and died, and where they had prospered until the paranoia of the pharaohs, who did not know Yosef, had taken over. They were leaving the houses they had built and they had raised families in. Added to this, some of the people are simply more psychologically territorial than others. For them, going elsewhere is almost always harder than staying put and trying to survive. But now their faith was to be shown. Now they were to gather as families to eat a quick meal of quickly prepared ingredients and then to depart quickly so that they would be able to get a head start on any potential Egyptian pursuit. One thing I want us to take note of at this verse. It was the Lord's Pesach. This was and is the Lord's Passover, not one that was created or designed by or for man, but it was by and for the Lord. Yes, its implications of obedience, salvation, and release from bondage was for man, specifically those who believed that Yahweh was who he said he was, the one true God. But as we'll see, this was not exclusive I am positive that those in Egypt, as we have previously discovered, who did believe, joined their Israelite neighbors in this command to celebrate the Lord's Pesach. We'll see this demonstrated as those who come out of Egypt along with the Israelites were the mixed multitude. In verses 12 and 13, we find the description of the Passover death, the judgment on the gods of Egypt, and the protection of the blood. Let me read these verses. For I will go through the land of Egypt, and on that night I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This precise description of the tenth plague reveals that it would take place in a matter of hours at most, as indicated by the statement on that same night, and it would affect the firstborn of all Egyptian humans and livestock, while the homes that displayed the Passover blood on their doors as a sign of faithful obedience to Yahweh would be spared. This would be a divine strike against Egypt, and, above all, would constitute judgment on all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the doorpost showed acceptance of Yahweh's plan for rescue and trust in his word. 
After all, the sight of dry blood by itself had no power to deter death. It was only as the dried blood painted on the top and sides of the door was a testimony to the faith of the inhabitants in Yahweh that it had its effectiveness. Thus the statement, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. In other words, I will spare all those who show that they have placed their faith in me. Who were the gods of Egypt? And how did a plague that killed the firstborn of men and animals function as judgment against them? Shmot chapter 12 verse 12 makes it clear to the reader of the plague stories what the purpose of these plagues really were. By the plagues, Yahweh demonstrated his superiority to all the supposed other gods and he demonstrated that superiority against the supposed gods of the greatest economic, political, military power of the day. Yahweh showed his sovereignty over all the nations of the earth and their gods. This was an evangelistic enterprise as we read in chapter 9 verses 14 through 16. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you then would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain, in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Yahweh's purpose was not to show off as if he needed attention or to prove himself to others as if he were insecure. Rather, he is, as he has always been, a saving God who delights in rescuing human beings from captivity, sometimes captivity of a political, economic, or social sort, but far more importantly, from captivity to sin, which brings death. Yahweh desires all people to come to a saving knowledge of the truth, and a large part of that truth is the fact that He is the only actual God, and that faith in Him is the only faith that accomplishes salvation and provides eternal life. The Egyptians were devoted to their gods and trusted them fully. The Israelites, during their 430-year sojourn in Egypt, probably had picked up much of some of that same attitude toward the Egyptian gods. Since such gods could not save, it was appropriate for Yahweh to persuade those who would sincerely seek the truth from holding to a belief system that would guarantee their ultimate destruction. As the one true God, he therefore made sure that the belief system of the Egyptians and for that matter, all pagan cultures by logical extension, was exposed as fraudulent and foolish. Since trust in a variety of gods was at the heart of that belief system, exposing a variety of gods as nothings, unable to save, unable to grant life, and unable to defeat Egypt and the Egyptians against the God of the Hebrews, was a convincing method of forcing people to look elsewhere than their discredited gods for salvation. To evangelize is to turn people away from the bad news, no matter how attractive it might look, and toward the good news. And if that can be accomplished by dramatically and decisively exposing the bad news as truly bad and obviously false, 
The reality of the good news has opportunity to sink into the consciousness of those who witnessed the sort of events the Egyptians and Israelites did in the case of the plagues. The Egyptians were both pantheists and polytheists. Pantheism is a belief system in which all nature is thought to partake of the divine. Anything that exists is a manifestation of, or a part of, or an extension of, a god. To see, or to touch, or hear, or taste is to encounter a god, because all things are, in some way, essentially part of a god or a goddess. Therefore, if something is judged anywhere in nature, that is a judgment on at least one god, and, by logical extension, Ten or eleven supernatural acts of judgment show control over ten or eleven different aspects of nature, thus representing multiple judgment strikes against Egyptian religion and ancient pagan religion. We saw how Yahweh sent judgments against Egypt using his power over nature, thus his power over their pantheistic dots. The Egyptians were also polytheists, as were all ancient people groups, other than the Israelites, that is, when the Israelites were in fact keeping the divine covenant. The Egyptians saw the universe as the habitation and expression of many gods and goddesses. Although, from the point of view of those who believed in the one true God, it might have been possible for a single decisive plague to demonstrate Yahweh's superiority to all the other gods. However, From the point of view of a polytheist, this might not have been quite so clear. A polytheist might easily conclude that a single plague was in fact a judgment against one god, but ten plagues of different sorts could hardly be understood that way. Since polytheism envisions many gods performing a great variety of functions, ten different sorts of plagues showing Yahweh's control over a variety of functions within the natural realm, serve to display the fact that many gods in general do not have power against the one true God in whose name Moshe and Aaron spoke. Repeated exposures of various Egyptian gods as powerless makes it clear that all such gods should be suspect as only the mere product of human belief. Moreover, consider the purpose of gods. What were the gods expected to do for those who worshipped them? What did the worshippers expect as the overall basic essential outcome of their devotion to the various gods and goddesses? The answer is that the worship of many gods had as its foremost goal to provide life. The gods were seen, above all, as the granters of life and protectors of the living the sustainers of existence. To ignore the gods was to be in danger of ignoring the forces that provided life and sustained their very basic existence. The gods, each in their own ways, supposedly sustained the lives of those who worshipped them. The plagues, appropriately, were largely focused on death. Nearly all of them resulted in death, in the first nine, that of the plants or animals afflicted by and used by Yahweh as agents of the plague. The tenth and the final plague was the ultimate one, and fittingly, it was the plague of death, showing that the gods, both separately and corporately, of any sort and any status, could not save anyone or anything from death. 
Therefore, judgments on the gods of Egypt is practically speaking a judgment on belief in those gods, trusting in what cannot save as opposed to the only one who can save. Shemot chapter 12 verse 12 is worded in a way designed to help capture the attention of those who thought or might think that the gods the Egyptian worshipped were real. In fact, judgment on the gods of Egypt accompanied by their complete silence is evidence that they never existed. From one point of view, it is a demissal of their existence as nonsense. Join us next time as we discover Yahweh's instructions regarding the Pesach bread. Thank you for joining us today as we delve into the beautiful truths of God's Word to indeed discover that there has to be more. I pray that the Word applied to your daily life will bring a deeper understanding of His love letter written just to you. Let me remind you that we have additional study aids to assist you with our studies together on our website, sectim.org. May this day fill you with the love of God, joy, and shalom. Nothing missing, nothing broken in your life.